I'm Amna Khalid. Before we get to Bully Pulpit, a preview of this week's episode of Banished. As a young woman with too many ideas, I left Pakistan for the promise of intellectual freedom in America. Teaching at a small liberal arts college in the US, where at last I could be fully free. I thought I was in heaven. But recently I've begun to wonder, am I really? With rising censorship, intolerance and cancellations, the West, once that shining beacon of freedom, seems a lot less lustrous from where I sit today. This week on Banished, The Temptations of the West, Reconsidered. Find it at booksmartstudios.org. Welcome to Bully Pulpit. That was Teddy Roosevelt. I'm Bob Garfield. With episode 16, everything you always wanted to know about leptons, but were too afraid to ask part two. In part one, we began our conversation with Stephen Goldfarb, a physicist at the University of Melbourne, working on the ATLAS experiment at CERN, the European Particle Physics Consortium that operates the world's biggest particle accelerator near Geneva, Switzerland. Part one was an epic collision of fundamental forces, the unstoppable energy of Goldfarb's knowledge versus the immovable object of my vast ignorance. But as someone once said, we persisted. So here is part two of our discussion, in which we will delve further into the physics, but also explore the collision of science with a vast, highly charged energy field of anti-intellectualism and skepticism. So Steve, uh, beginning where we left off, Uh the uh, standard model of physics, the theoretical understanding of the forces of the universe, is running out of holes to fill. Experiments at CERN and elsewhere over the past half century have physically located the most elemental subatomic particles, and almost, almost every discovery fits right snug into that standard model. For instance, and most famously, the standard model predicted the Higgs boson, sometimes to your irritation, called the God particle. Physicists knew it was there, but they couldn't find it until 10 years ago when CERN did. So not that much left to isolate. I mean, we discussed dark matter. Uh, Physicists know by inference that it's there, but they can't see it because it's playing hide and seek with the universe and it never utters a peep. Is there anything else that you're searching for some missing link that will further confirm or significantly undercut the assumptions of the standard model? In this great manhunt, what is the particle and what is the substance of interest? So we are looking for everything. You know, we want to see, are there other Higgs bosons out there, for example? Are there other things out there which are completely different? We do a lot of precise measurements trying to see what things disagree. Uh, Let me give you, I already gave you the one about dark matter. We don't know about that. What is dark matter? And there's a lot of different ways to look for that. 
we also have other major questions. I mean, first of all, there's the Russian doll question. Are we so sure that the particles we have are the elementary particles? Could they be made up of something else? Are there whole universes embedded within the tiniest subatomic particle? The question I used to muse over when I was a little boy staring up at the heavens. Sure, exactly. Or you could simply ask, is it turtles all the way down? I mean, is, <laughs> what, what is there? Uh, another question that always seems to pop up in human minds is, you know, why do we exist? And that's a really good question because we shouldn't. As far as we can tell, there was this Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, and that was probably even before Mrs. Greenspan. Uh, 13.8 billion years ago, you know, all of matter and energy came into existence. Uh, from everything that we measure, there's a balance of what we call matter and antimatter. Antimatter being the exact same thing as matter, but with an opposite charge. And that's something that we've seen, we've known since the 30s was the first time that we actually measured it. And we know it exists. We produce it all the time. So there's matter and antimatter that were produced at the Big Bang. The matter and the antimatter ran into each other and they annihilate it. Because if matter hits antimatter, it makes a big boom and creates energy and disappears. And so we know that that happened and pretty much everything annihilated. But for some strange reason, a little bit of dust uh, remained and, and that's us. And, and we don't really get that. Why was there this imbalance? Why are we here? Uh, nothing that we found so far can explain that imbalance. So that's something, uh, actually an experiment called LHCB, they kind of focus on that problem. So that's another big question out there. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Big Bang. Because, you know, it may well be, Steve, that I've buried the lead here. <laughs> this decision to suddenly veer away from what a conflicted menace Joe Manchin is to the hidden secrets of matter and energy, you know, requires what we journalizers call a news peg, a reason for visiting an unexpected subject. And I have one, mm -hmm. although I, I might be a little late, uh, about 14 billion years too late, because I just the other day read that contrary to previous quantum consensus, the Big Bang was not the origin of the universe. W what? <laughs> And that's, that's my ex exact same response. <laughs> what? Uh, you know, the truth is we, we don't know. We haven't yet found uh, anyone who was around at the time. All we can really do is extrapolate back from what we see. And that's what brilliant astronomers and astrophysicists have been doing since they've been able to look out at the stars. They measured the directions, that the speeds of galaxies and clusters of galaxies. They've looked at supernova, and they've been able to, from the frequency of the light emitted by these supernovas, as an example, they're able to tell that they are accelerating away. That's how we know that the universe is expanding, because you see that they have a red shift, meaning that the light is not exactly the color it ought to be, but it's shifted because when something moves away from you, frequencies get longer, much, much like an ambulance after it's driven past you when it's siren on, you can hear the frequency go from shorter to longer. The same thing happens with the light from these stars. So you can use information like that to extrapolate back in time and say, oh, okay, so everything 
uh, has been accelerating from a point, from a big bang. The universe has been expanding. When you look out, the further you look out in space, the further you're looking back in time. Because even though light goes super fast, the speed of light, in a vacuum, it takes time. So when we look back at the light, ancient light from very, very distant stars, we learn something about early time. All the different things there lead to a model of the early universe that can be explained with a big bang uh, that happened 13.8 billion years ago. But of course, if you can come up with another theory uh, which works and explains all of this, that's fine. A lot of people, I mean, the natural question to ask, and I'm asked this a lot, is, well, what was there before the Big Bang? Or what is there outside of our universe? And, and those questions we just can't answer. It's like trying to figure out, you know, what Kristen Cinema is thinking. It's, it's something that's just not, it doesn't comply with physical laws. <laughs> it's the ultimate, not Christian Cinema, but uh, the, the question of what predated the universe, the ultimate cosmological and ontological question in life. Uh, and, and speaking for myself personally, like I mentioned, since I was eight years old, on my back on a, uh, you know, a camp outing, staring at the sky, wondering, is there or was there ever such thing as nothing? Uh-huh. Because even the Big Bang, you know, talks about matter and antimatter, annihilating one another, leaving behind cosmic dust. But it, it sounds to me that antimatter and matter are something, which so uh, help me <laughs> I, I would love to help you i'd love to understand this better myself that, i mean that they came from nothing that 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 whole question uh, is is a very very difficult one i'm not a cosmologist there are cosmologists working on this their entire careers so trying to understand what happened at at time zero uh, is a really, really tough one. What we can extrapolate back to is very short time after the Big Bang, even picosecond after the Big Bang. But most of the really cool stuff, all the forces were formed, you know, before the first second from what we can measure. That's what we believe in. And you can see measurements that confirm this, that most of the cool stuff happened back then. Getting back to point zero, I, I'm not sure we'll ever get there. I don't know. You, you always have to ask yourself this question. When you're in my field, or maybe in any field, when you're on one star, which is one out of 100 billion stars in one galaxy, which is one out of 100 billion galaxies in our universe, is it reasonable to think that we'll actually be able to figure everything out? And, and, and so that's, so you're, you're laying on the bench. It's amazing because I had a realization also exactly like that. I was at a camp laying down on, on a bench and I had gone through these thoughts, but one of the coolest ideas that finally came to my mind in that same situation was I imagined the fact that as opposed to laying on a bench, I was standing in the middle of the universe and Attached to my back was a planet. And that was sort of the first time I started to understand gravity. So I think going out at night and <laughs> laying down on benches is a very valuable thing for science and for human understanding. Well, if you've got a planet growing on your back, you really should probably have that looked at. 
<laughs> this one in particular <laughs> it looks pretty sick at the moment. To understand physicists and the work you do, I ran into uh, a video from uh, the publisher of Universe Today. His name is Fraser Kane. Oh, yeah. He describes himself this way in this particular piece of tape, talking about FRBs, frequent radio blasts, which astronomers look at because, you know, it, these are high energy blasts that are coming from far away in the galaxy and might suggest something uh, like intelligent life yelling, hey, hey, look, we're over here, we're over here, or not, but. I love the way he describes what people like you do. I dig into these ideas like a badger hiding a cow carcass, and then we all get to enjoy the cache of knowledge I uncover. Okay, that analogy got a little weird. You seen that video of the badger hiding the cow? Super cool. Anyway, my point is, fast radio bursts are the new cosmic what's-its, confusing and baffling astronomers. <laughs> are you a cow carcass eating badger? <laughs> well, I, I suppose I could be if I'm a scientist. You, you have to be. You have to be curious. I mean, but look, it's a feature of humans, right? I know a lot of people will say, oh, you know, all of this stuff you're doing, uh, particle physics, it sounds kind of esoteric. Um, do human beings really need to be doing this right now? We have other pressing issues. Uh, couldn't we use you doing other things? Uh, and my response is that we have no choice. This is, this is what humans do. Humans explore the world around them because that's the only way we can figure things out and find the tools that next generations will need to survive. I mean, a, a very, very good example from a completely different field would be mRNA. You know, why mess around with that stuff 20 years ago? What an esoteric thing to study in that field. How could that ever be helpful? You're, you're discussing the process that yielded the COVID vaccines. Exactly. I mean, these things, we never know direct applications. There, there are many direct applications of what we do, the World Wide Web. Uh, you know, Tim Berners-Lee invented that just simply as a means for us to share scientific information uh, over the web. Of course, we're all saddened by the fact that it's being used to propagate a lot of non-scientific information and that that stuff seems to propagate much more quickly and much more broadly than the science. Yet, I think, overall, that was a good application from our work here at CERN. Other things would include, you know, the MRIs and PET scans and, and a lot of these things which are used in hospitals. In fact, you know, more than 90% of the accelerators in the world now are used for medical purposes. So there's a lot of direct applications. But I would throw all that away and say that we still have to do this. We have to explore our world. Otherwise, we will not have the answers that future generations will need to solve their problems. I want to ask you one last thing, mm -hmm. Stephen, and it, it, it actually gets back to the use of the web for disinformation that you just referred to. In our correspondence before this conversation, you made an observation about CERN. I think of it as the site of, you know, a, a gigantic particle collider. You called it a truth factory. Now, once upon a time, let's say between Galileo and approximately five minutes ago, science and scientists were held in very high esteem. Now, you are widely 
uh, not universally, but widely seen as part of a global cabal to invent fake news about COVID, for example, and, and about climate change. I mean, yesterday it was revealed that Donald Trump is launching a social media network, uh, which he is calling, as God is my witness, truth. Uh, now, maybe it's just because he couldn't get the URL for you know, the same fucking lies repeated again and again in perpetuity. <laughs> Most corrupt election in the history of our country. With the word truth so utterly co-opted, what effect does this have on your field? Do people throw the book of Genesis at you more than they did in the, the pre-Trump <laughs> era? How to begin. I think that's a Bobism that I remember. How, how to begin. When we say something at a place like CERN, it takes an enormous effort. We don't say something until there is less than a one and three and a half million chance that it could be false. Okay, we call that five sigma in science speak. We would not have said we had found the Higgs boson unless we were sure to that precision. It is an enormous task, any one of the thousand papers that we published, to do one of those means that uh, I have to convince myself that it's worthwhile doing this exercise, that I'm looking for something that's interesting and that I can, with my uh, detector and with the LHC providing collisions, that I can do that measurement. I have to show this to myself with simulation and then show my colleagues in my group from my institute. I then have to show it to a dedicated subgroup looking for a specific process like the Higgs boson decaying to tau leptons. I have to show it to them. They come back to me with questions. They ask things. They make me go through hoops before I can convince them that my measurement is done correctly. They'll tell me to remeasure things here and there. I then have to show this to the bigger overall Higgs group, as an example, and convince them. I have to go convince my collaboration. We then have to go through publishing and communication committee where we show them the paper. They come back with many changes and things that we have to check and verify. There is no, no, no motivation whatsoever in this process for me to lie. If I lie, and I'm caught lying in this process, I'm done. My career is over. I have to go to Wall Street or some other horrible place uh, to work. It's just not possible uh, because we, we, we would lose our careers in an instant. So we have to go through all of these hurdles, make it through all of them, even when we're all done can convinced our own publication committee and our, and our own experiment, which mine has 3,000 co-authors, we then have to publish in a journal which then takes it to people from other experiments who have to look at it and check it and get back to us and give us comments and corrections before we publish that single paper which advances our knowledge. But you can bet that that's truth. It's based on data. It's not just a thought. It's a long, hard-out process. And perhaps this is what hurts us in the communication world. Truth has error bars. It has uncertainty to it. If someone comes to you and tells you a specific thing, they say, I know the Higgs boson weighs 125 GeV, period. They're wrong. 
uh, because it's 125 plus or minus 0.0 whatever, 0.03 or whatever it is. There are error bars. There's uncertainty. And that's really, really important. That's perhaps why in the short run, we can't battle with Tucker Carlson or with Donald, what's his name? I've forgotten it already. We're not going to be able to battle with them because they will just say things and sound convincing. And Tucker Carlson sounds like he's got a very great ad authoritatum voice. And he will tell you that this banana is blue and all bananas are blue. And over time, it will be known that bananas are yellow and that Tucker Carlson was a fool. It's just a question of time. Steve, I want to thank you very much. Well, I I really appreciate having the chance to talk with you. Stephen Goldfarb is a physicist at the University of Melbourne. You know how, as a kid, he imagined having the world on his back? The experiment he is working on at CERN is called Atlas. All right, we're almost done here, but uh, after Steve Goldfarb and I spoke... He was moved to send a little epilogue, a a, a coda, in which he, uh, well, you'll see. I'm going to play it right now in its entirety. Hi, Bob. Steve again. Uh, Welcome to my epilogue. I know that you uh, probably can't use anything like this, but at the end of our interview, just as at the end of any interview I've ever done, all I could think of was all of the things that I wanted to say and didn't say, and a few of the things I said and probably shouldn't have. I'm not too worried about that, but for the sake of my own sanity, I'm going to record this epilogue and will at least feel that I've done that. So for what it's worth, here here it goes. Bob, I'd like to leave you with a few notes of optimism. Two, to be precise. First of all, our youth, the kids, the students out there in the world. I happen to chair an entity called the International Particle Physics Outreach Group, something I do in my spare time, with my colleagues around the globe who are doing particle physics research. We go into classrooms, we invite classrooms over to our institutes, and we give the students real data and show them, well, basically what we do. They learn how to try to find results. They learn the disappointment of not finding something or the excitement of finding something. They use real tools, the same ones that we use, real data, and they learn the methods, the scientific methods. And I can guarantee that these students believe in evidence-based decision-making. They can differentiate between the truth and things which come from other sources, uh, such as Fox News. They know the difference. And these kids, another thing I've learned from them is that they're a bit less susceptible than you and I are to trolls. They've grown up in this environment, and they know what's out there. So I think that there is some optimism in the future for what these students will bring with them as they go out into the world. So there's one point. The other point, which I think is very important here, is that the world is getting smaller. It continues to get smaller. Even if we try to build walls everywhere, these walls don't hold people back. People are traveling 
as much as they can. Even with the pandemic, people are now starting to get back up in the air and to go to all parts of the world and to move to different parts of the world. We learned about this since 1954 when CERN was founded. We found that a diverse international environment was a great one to work in, especially when all of the people are working together to try to solve the most difficult problems facing humankind. In fact, common problems we probably have with other species elsewhere in the universe, trying to understand, you know, what are the basic building blocks of our universe? What's its structure? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Etc. These common problems and people working on them together from a diverse points of view are going to bring the truth out no matter what. Science in the long run brings out the truth. And there is absolutely nothing that Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or any of the other morons can do to stop the truth in the long run. So I think that's something that can bring a slight smile to our souls, even though we see what's happening in the short run. We know that ultimately we're going to win. So there you go. There's my epilogue. Uh, Take it for what it's worth. Whether you use it or not, doesn't matter. I feel much better, and, and that's what counts in the end, isn't it? Okay, now we really are done here. Bully Pulpit is produced by Mike Volo and Matthew Schwartz. Our theme was composed by Julie Miller and the team at Harvest Creative Services in Lansing, Michigan. Bully Pulpit is a production of Booksmart Studios. I'm Bob Garfield.